everyone. I'm Olivia, and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. It's July, and that means it's time for sharks. If you watch Shark Week on Discovery or Shark Fest on Nat Geo, then you are probably aware they typically cover the larger, more well-known sharks reasonably well. So, much like last year, this year we're going to be talking about one of the sharks not as much on the public's collective radar, and also turns out to be a wee little guy. So, to set the scene for this one, imagine this, it's the 1970s, so kind of Cold War era. You're on a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine going along your merry way in the Pacific when something damages the sub's navigation system, forcing you to return to base. Uh, Something left a weird-looking kind of bite mark on the neoprene covering around your sonar dome and just went right clear through it. For quite a while, the concern was that some other country had developed some secret weapon that could cause this damage and knock out the navigation systems. Um, But after later experimentation in the 70s and a switch to fiberglass to solve the problem, Researchers figured out that the little deep-water cookie-cutter shark was the culprit. You may think that if you have a shark attacking military submarines that it's going to be this big, scary shark, but nope. At least not in this case. The cookie-cutter shark only grows to be about a foot and a half long, so right around 54 centimeters on average, or really even at the biggest. So these sharks aren't very big at all. Uh, but they have been the center of mystery for quite some time. Um, Even way back, there's an ancient Samoan legend where a skipjack tuna uh, would enter Palaui Bay, and they would have to leave behind a piece of their flesh as a sacrifice to the community chief. And then when whales and dolphins would become stranded, especially in the tropics, it was not unusual for them to have these small, round, golf ball-sized plugs of flesh just cut right out of their skin. These wounds were usually about 2 inches, 5 centimeters across, and about uh, 3 inches or 7 centimeters deep. And also always round, much like something just took a cookie cutter to these animals and just cut a bit of skin right on out. So larger sharks, like great whites and basking sharks, had also been observed with these wounds. And for these sharks and living whales as well, the cookie-cutter-shaped wounds and scars are one way that people could actually work on telling individuals apart, do some population studies. For many years, it was thought that these marks were the result of some weird infection or maybe barnacle scars, even sea lampreys. Um, But barnacles and sea lampreys don't make scars that deep, and infections just don't behave that way, especially that consistently and repeatedly. Um, But then, in 1971, scientists finally were able to put two and two together after looking at the mouth of a cookie-cutter shark, and they're just kind of like, oh, hey, this is what's doing that. Interestingly, the cookie-cutter shark had been discovered, at least by Western science, long before then. It was originally described by a couple of French naturalists on a voyage going through Brazil between 1817 and 1820. So why did it take so long for us to figure out what was causing the cookie-cutter-shaped bite wounds? It could partially be due to it being small and pretty elusive. While it does live in tropical and subtropical oceans all around the world, during the day it does hang out in some pretty deep water. 
Its preferred depth range is from surface waters of about 85 meters all the way down to about 3,500, which, as many of us might be aware due to certain imploding submarines, that is about 1,100 or 11,500 feet, so not quite as deep as the Titanic. During the day when most people would be hanging out in and around the ocean, the cookie cutter shark tends to stay towards the deeper end of the range, but at night it travels up towards the surface as part of the daily vertical migration that really many deep ocean sea animals participate in. Every day they'll travel up to the surface waters from the deep to feed over during the night, and then once the sun rises again, they begin the swim back down to the deep. Every day, just traveling thousands of meters uh, up and down the water column. Of all of the migrations, especially for daily travel, this one is one of the most impressive, in my opinion, and also one of the least well-known, or at least not widely talked about when talking about long migrations. It's usually like the birds or, oh, hey, sharks migrate too. But there's this kind of secret migration that happens every day that we just don't talk too much about. Since the cookie cutter shark is so elusive, people generally don't have to worry about it. Though there have been a few instances of people getting bit by one, usually when they're swimming through a channel as part of one of those like channel ocean swimming challenges. Uh, most records we have of people being bit are people swimming across the Kaiwi Channel in Hawaii. But there have also been some instances of people who have been shipwrecked being bit, which would be rather unfortunate time to just really be bitten by anything. Mostly though, it's ocean animals that are targeted by the cookie cutter shark. And I've already mentioned a few specific ones like some of the bigger sharks and the whales. But just generally speaking, if you are a medium to large animal that lives in cookie cutter territory, Chances are you or someone you know will have a cookie cutter shark bite. I mentioned a few whales and the great white shark and the basking shark, but there are so many more potential prey. So 49 species of cetaceans, so that's your big whales, dolphins, porpoises, have all been recorded to have cookie cutter shark bites. One source said that nearly every adult spinner dolphin that lives around Hawaii has at least one scar from the cookie cutter. And Particularly emaciated beached melon-headed whales in the Atlantic also tend to have dozens to hundreds of bite marks. Even orcas off the coast of New Zealand have cookie-cutter shark wounds, and orcas are pretty much considered to be top of the food chain. Not too many things mess with orcas, but here we have this little cookie-cutter shark just like going on up and stealing its, stealing its meat. Seals and sea lions do go up on land to rest. But So, since they aren't in water all the time, are they in the clear? Nope. Fur seals, leopard seals, and elephant seals have also all been recorded as victims to the cookie cutter shark. So, I think at this point it would make sense to just go through the list because it honestly is really quite the list and pretty impressive that a tiny one and a half foot long shark, something that could easily fit in a shoebox, would essentially just swim up to some of these animals or potentially lure them in and just steal a chunk of meat. Some of the targets are over 10 times the body length of the cookie cutter shark. So in addition to the dolphins and whales already mentioned, we have porpoises, beaked whales, sperm whales, baleen whales, which would include the fin whale, which is the second largest of the whales, 
dugongs, blue sharks, goblin sharks, basking sharks, the great whites, megamouth sharks, the small tooth sand tiger shark, deepwater stingrays, pelagic stingray, the six gill stingray, and then we have the bony fish like billfish, so your swordfish, marlin, things like that, several tuna species, dolphin fish, jacks, escalars, opas, and pomfrets. So yeah, for real, if you are a medium to large oceanic critter that exists between 20 degrees north and south, then you are at risk for bite marks. Uh, because they're of their tendency to take chunks of flesh from prey, cookie cutter sharks are considered ectoparasites, which just means that it's a parasite that attacks the outside of a critter. They do eat other things like squid that are smaller than them, as well as some small crustaceans. Um, so that would make cookie cutter sharks facultative ectoparasites. So they do parasitize, but they don't solely rely on that as a food source. And there are actually some recent studies that would, um, that seem to indicate that the parasitism is actually a supplement to their usual diet of squids and small crustaceans. But how do they bring in their prey? Do they just swim right on up to them? Do they lure them in? What happens there? And of course, how do they take their bite chunks? From what I read, marine biologists studying cookie cutter sharks have a pretty solid idea of the how, um, and a bit less confident of an idea of how the bite chunk is actually like taken out, but uh, we do have information on both. So one fun thing that I learned about cookie cutter sharks is that they are, they actually have bioluminescent organs in their skin, mostly on the undersides of their body that are called photophores. Uh, some anglerfish, like the ones in Finding Nemo, since I referenced that in the lapis ep last episode, also have a photophore they use as a lure. So photophores can vary in level of complication. Sometimes it really is just some gland that produces light. Um, but other times, they can be nearly as complex as an eye, really just the opposite. So they can have lenses and all that good stuff, just instead of absorbing light, they're producing light. So they're pretty fancy, or they can be pretty fancy. In cookie cutter sharks, uh, they have a dark band that it acts like a collar around where the gills are. And then before and after that collar is where they have the photophores. So the photophores will do a couple of things for the shark. The first is helping to provide a bit of camouflage, which is kind of the opposite of the other function that we think it provides. Since they tend to live in low light areas of open ocean, when you look up from the depths, you would see the light coming down and then anything that isn't lit will produce a shadow. So if you're a fish that has light producing capabilities on your belly, that will help to disguise your body and your figure so that predators can't see you as well and won't really be able to assess if you would be a tasty fish snack or if you would be a dangerous fish that they don't really want to mess with. So scientists also think that the photophores could have the opposite function and act as a lure for larger predators to come in. And therefore that larger predator would then become prey to the cookie cutter, which I keep saying prey, but the cookie cutter shark bites are not lethal. Uh, many marine critters will live normal lives with having a cookie cutter shark chunk taken out of them. And um, over time, they will have, um, the wound will heal, heal into scars 
And there are some studies that try to see how long it can take for these wounds and scars to completely heal over. And I think in the orcas, the one study I read was looking at that it was like over a year that it took for the scars to disappear. I think it may have been upwards of close to two to three years, but I didn't look at wound healing so much for this one. So I didn't have those numbers written down. So for acting as a lure function between the photophores and the dark collar band, it could help the cookie cutter shark to look a bit like a tasty snack. And then when the larger animal comes in to check it out, then the cookie cutter shark just latches on. And uh, one of the articles I read was looking at uh, sub-adult great white sharks and their cookie cutter shark bites. And they tended to have the bites around the mouth area. So that could indicate that this is what's happening there. But especially since baleen whales have bite marks and sharks just tend to be pretty opportunistic. While it may act as a lure in some situations, I'm sure that they're also going to be sniffing out the area just to see what's around, much like any other good little shark would. So then, how can it cut out such a consistently round, cookie-cutter-sized, and shaped chunk out of its victim? So, first thing, the shark has a mouth that acts a lot like a suction cup, which is going to help attach it to whatever large critter it wants to take a bite of, and it'll be attached very securely. Then it has two different types of teeth, which is really pretty typical. With sharks, the upper jaw and lower jaw do tend to be a little different. In the cookie cutter shark, on the upper jaw, it has small hook-like teeth, and that's going to help with attachment and generally just holding on to its newly sliced out chunk of flesh so it doesn't drop it, which would be very sad if you went through all the trouble of cutting out this nice little piece of meat and then you drop it and it's like, man. And then on the lower jaw, it has smaller sharp teeth that are all interconnected. And the lower teeth are so interconnected that when it's time for the shark to lose a tooth, instead of losing teeth on the bottom row individually, just the entire bottom row of teeth is lost all at once and then the new ones come up to replace it. And this is going to help ensure that it always has a continuous cutting edge because as we will find out in a moment, it's this bottom row of teeth that acts a lot like a knife and that's how it cuts through the skin. Originally, it was thought that once the cookie cutter shark was attached, the water flow around the swimming whale shark or whatever would help to rotate the cookie cutter shark around. So critter would be swimming forward and then the cookie cutter shark would essentially be rotating in the uh, water flow that is created around that animal. Um, however, after a researcher at the ReefQuest Center for Shark Research experienced a bite by a spiny dogfish, that idea has changed. Spiny dogfish and cookie cutter sharks are in the same group of sharks and have very similar jaw and tooth arrangements. So this researcher was working on setting up a bait station so they could study feeding patterns in the spiny dogfish shark when all of a sudden he felt a bump on his arm and then this kind of weird back and forth vibration sensation only to see a dogfish clamp down and taking a bite out of his dive suit trying to bite his arm. When the spiny dogfish left, there was a nearly circular cut out of the neoprene suit hanging there 
and this circular cut sure looked a lot like the cookie cutter shark bites. So since cookie cutter sharks have a similar teeth arrangement to the spiny dogfish, they may be using a very similar method to cut these cookie cutter shaped chunks out of their prey. So once they're suctioned and clamped down, they would vibrate their lower jaw and hyoid bone, and that's a bone that's kind of at the base of the jaw, um, back and forth. And this back and rapid back and forth vibration motion is going to help slice through the flesh. And as they said in the article talking about this, it would make that lower set of teeth much like or act really exactly like an electric carving knife that you may use on Thanksgiving to get through a big turkey. So again, since we are humans and not a large marine animal, we generally don't have to worry about cookie cutter sharks taking their electric carving knife teeth to our legs. Um, and really these aren't going to be a limb losing bite, but I also can't imagine that it would do great things to a leg. But for the most part, as we said, these aren't going to be targeting people and they're pretty elusive, which did lead to their lives being a mystery for quite some time. Not just how they, or not just the fact that they were the ones taking out these chunks of flesh, but what they ate in addition to their little meat plugs is also a pretty recent discovery. Uh, now though, when we see strange cookie cutter, cookie cutter marks on animals out at sea or washed up on shore, we know that it's not some mysterious uh, beast in the ocean, but it's just our little friend, the cookie cutter shark. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and know anyone in your life that could use some new shark facts, which we all know is everyone, Share the podcast with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes. And if you feel so inspired, leave us a review. Those are all great ways to support the podcast and help new people find us. And if you are on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky Creepy Freaky on Facebook and Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all the pictures and updates on the podcast. Thanks to my sister, Kaylee Strait, for creating the theme music. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.